employees are like fish in a pond. You can enroll the fish in a stress management training, in a time management training, but if you put them back in a toxic pond, they'll still burn out. So what they did is they had team resilience workshops where they brought teams together and the teams identified where the stress and the hurdles came from and they worked together to find solutions. Welcome to another episode of the Work Life Hub podcast. Each week we bring you an inspiring guest to help you discover the new world of work and learn how your organization can reach its full potential. Thank you for tuning in and spending some time with us today. To find out more about the Work Life Hub, please go to www.worklifehub.com. Welcome to the listeners of the Work Life Hub podcast. My name is Agnes Uheretsky, and I'm here today uh, joined by uh, Ariane Ollier-Malater. She's joining me from Canada, so that's a great pleasure to have somebody again from Canada. Hello, Ariane. Hello, Agnes. Thank you very much for having me. I'm so happy and excited to have this conversation with you today, Ariane. I've been following your work uh, and some of the incredibly exciting uh, work-life balance research that you have produced together with colleagues. So I'm very uh, keen on talking about this with you. But before we do that, I would like to just introduce you to our many listeners. Um, Ariane, you are a professor of management uh, at the University uh, of Quebec in Montreal. Uh, you have had 10 years of experience as a management consultant at Accenture and also been a startup founder. So it's quite an interesting mix of business and entrepreneurship, but then also academia, uh, because you then uh, did your doctorate in human resources management about managing work and non-work domains. Uh, you also joined the Boston College uh, for a postdoc uh, researcher position. And, and those who know the Boston College is, is kind of the hub of work-life uh, scholars. And after a stint at McGill University, you are now uh, at the University of Quebec in Montreal. So without further ado, um, may I ask you now, Ariane, to tell listeners a little bit about yourself, about your passion, and how did you get into this line of research focusing on work and non-work domains? Right. So, so uh, as you've mentioned, I've worked about 10 years in the industry before uh, getting a PhD. And um, as I was a consultant for uh, actually six years, um, I academia, I had my own startup. I was a project leader in a, in a grande école in France. So different settings for about uh, 10, 11 years. And two things struck me all these years. Um, one, the workplace uh, was operating as if people didn't have lives outside of work. Uh, and two, uh, women were dropping out of the high potential tracks and dropping out of the uh, up or out systems. Um, so what was central in, in most of the workplaces that I got to observe was the necessities of the job and the clients, which, which is understandable, of course, but uh, it occurred to me all this could have been achieved 
without ignoring and damaging sometimes employees' personal and family lives. So for my PhD, I chose to focus on how employers were handling the apparently annoying fact that employees were not robots, you know, but in fact, they they were human beings. They had lives, commitments, aspirations outside of work. And I wanted to examine what policies employers were adopting and if these policies uh, actually uh, worked well. So at that time, uh, I had not yet gathered that the two phenomena I was observing So workplaces operating as if people didn't have lives and women dropping out. Uh, These two phenomena were actually related, and I'm going to explain more later. But that's what I gradually came to understand as I was reading for my PhD and then conducting my own research. So the research helped me understand what I had seen all these years, the career trajectories of my male and female peers and the dynamics in my own life. So as an aside, if if PhD students or candidates are listening, uh, sometimes uh, you know you hear people say you should research topics that you are not attached to, that you can you can conduct objective research. <laughs> I strongly disagree with that. I think you should work on something you really care for, something you have a personal need to understand. Absolutely, and and I think that's a, a quite a common thread among the guests of uh, you know our podcast. Uh, firstly, you know there's nobody who can research work-life balance without having a personal experience or stake in it. Um, but secondly, it's a lot of times women and men who who are passionate about gender equality, passionate about child well-being, passionate about employee well-being, and that's when they venture into this field of academia. But thank you very much for sharing uh, your journey with us. And and now without further ado, I would like to jump right in into kind of the heart and the core of some of your uh, uh, research uh, papers and and projects. Um, One of them is a paper called Not All Work-Life Policies Are Created Equal and Career Consequences of Using It. I was particularly struck by that because the work-life uh, conversation is, is, for the time being, at least in Europe, is, is not that nuanced. Um, it's, it's more like, does it work or doesn't it work? You know, uh, it, it's, a, it's a kind of a binary discussion of open space offices or closed offices, teleworking or no teleworking, flexible working, no flexible working. And I really enjoyed the fact that you and some other colleagues, you go now really into the nuances of it, and you find uh, you found in your research that um, different policies affect women differently than men, um, and also have different impact on people's job satisfaction, career, or work-life conflict, depending on where they are in their career, uh, what's happening at work. So I wanted to ask you a bit of a geeky question first. Um, do you think it's because we have now more evidence because this has been now uh, been around for longer or the research and scholarship is actually maturing now to, to looking at more of these details and not so much these kind of seeking standard answers? 
Well, I think it's a it's a matter of both, and uh, I see two factors that really uh, help advance scholarship on, on work family issues. Um, uh, globalization and technology is is the first one because research has become more interdisciplinary and global, and that's entirely uh, thanks to the development of information technologies and global conferences. So now we have access to research from other disciplines or countries. It's a lot easier. You know, you have portals such as ResearchGate. You can even access the research for free. Increasingly, uh, there are open portals as well. Uh, travel is easier. So that may sound trivial, but it's not. Because if you can go to global conferences and read uh, papers in different languages from different disciplines, there, then there's a lot more cross-fertilization. And that helps, um, you know, bridging the silos uh, that lead to the kind of unnuanced uh, uh, research that, that you were pointing out. Um, and the second factor, you're right that there's more evidence now, in part because uh, there's more field policies available to study. Uh, and there's there has been some research accumulation over the last decades. So as a field, we have been able to dig deeper and deeper beyond the first assumptions. Um, so um, from my, in my view, a couple decades ago, I believe the priority was to promote adoption of the policies by employers, like, like you were saying, you know, telework or no telework. Uh, but the hope was it would be enough. Then there was a moment where many people, scholars and advocates, well, were discouraged because the literature reviews, the meta-analysis, well, they showed mixed results. Um, for instance, in my PhD dissertation, um, when I interviewed over 100 people in the US, in the UK and France, uh, I found some very positive outcomes of work-life policies. For instance, people felt loyal to the organization. They felt proud that they were being supported by their employer. But I also found negative outcomes. Uh, I wasn't expecting that. So some people felt angry because they could not access uh, some policies. They felt resentment because they were fairness issues. Uh, some stayed with the company just because of the policies. But in fact, they wished they could you know, go elsewhere. Um, and then for other employees, the policies just didn't do anything. Um, so since then, we've had careful research on the implementation gaps, and um, that research has pointed out two very fundamental reasons why just adopting work-life policies isn't a guarantee of moving work-life balance forward. So the, the first major um, reason that I think uh, research these last decades hasn't covered um, is that the core obstacle to a healthy work-life interface is the issue of the workload and how work is organized. So it's not just, you know, flexible work, no flexible work, telework, no telework. It's the workload. Um, so you can have an on-site childcare center, a gym and a clinic, but if the expected workload is 60 plus hours a week, it's not going to help much. Um, you can have flexible hours and telework, but 
If your manager emails you at 8 p.m. with an urgent client deadline for the following day, 7 a.m., all the flex and control in the world is not going to enable you to read to your kids, call your dad, or get enough sleep. So you know that I'm also researching the impact of uh, technology and work and family, um, and it's increasingly challenging for people to create and maintain boundaries between work and life. So a quick plug here, um, we have a recent review in the annual review of sociology with Jerry Jacobs and Nancy Rosebarts on how technology is impacting work and family. Uh, so the importance of the workload, um, you know, it's quite obvious. It, it may sound obvious to everyone listening, but for employers, it's easier to provide additional services and policies than it is to examine work processes to prioritize tasks and to change the culture so that managers come up with reasonable and sustainable workloads. Um, one example of the importance of the workload is a, is a research that Ellen Kosek and I just published on, on how managers reduce the load when a professional or a manager goes on a reduced load schedule. You know, reduced load schedules um, for instance, you uh, take a 20% pay cut and you uh, have only four clients when you had five. So you actually, it's not just a part-time where we, you reduce the time, you actually strive to reduce the workload. So uh, we found that some managers actually just reshuffle the workload and others uh, succeed in reducing the loads. And what it takes is a collaborative effort between the employee and the manager and support from the organization. So it's it's quite challenging, actually, but it's super important. And then the second very important dynamic that, that research has uncovered, in um, particularly thanks to interdisciplinary exchanges, is the fact that little can be improved if we focus only in the workplace. <laughs> so maybe that's not that obvious, but workplaces are embedded in societies and employees have roles in their families. So actually achieving sustainable work-life balance requires not only policies and cultural change in the workplace, but also change in the families and in the societies. So as long as we keep devaluing care, care for children, care for elders, care for disabled adults, as long as we keep devaluing domestic work and community involvement, and as long as we keep overvaluing work and careers, uh, inequalities between men and women will persist. And that's because men will not embrace care because that's not valued in societies. So if men don't embrace care, then women remain the primary caretakers and therefore they are held back in the workplaces. So you see the linkages. Uh, we cannot improve sustainability of rhythm in the workplace if we don't tackle the families. It's a systemic issue. So research points out that we've been operating on an illusion of gender equality and we're not there yet. And that's very damaging to changing home and workplace dynamics. That, that's really one thing that we need to address. There's so much to unpack in your answer. And I absolutely 
uh, loved the different points you make, especially uh, the one about the reduce load schedules. Uh, I have to admit I've never heard of this concept, but it totally makes sense because I have heard from not just one, but quite a few women who, when they have asked for part-time, because they felt that that would help them to get the balance better, that they could manage better, uh, their supervisor would tell them uh, there's no point in reducing to part-time because you would have to do the work anyway. And a lot of people go part-time, have this experience that you just had to do the same amount of work, but for half the pay and half in half the time, basically. Exactly. So what you have to do is either a uh, reduced load or a job share, you know, two people sharing a full-time job. But you have to plan for how you're going to make work go away. Because if you don't, it's it's what you say, you're going to end up, you know, doing the same work for less pay. Um, so, again, flexibility and telework, th this, this is wonderful. And I'm, I'm really an advocate for these policies. But what is really going to help people in our crazy, contemporary, speedy workplace uh, is pay, pay attention to the workloads and pay attention to uh, work at home in families. You know, who's doing the work at home? Because that is going to impact who can do the work in the workplace. Absolutely. And if I may just ask you one more thing about this workload issue, because I find that absolutely fascinating. Um, in your research, uh, did you find answers to the question of why managers are so bad in estimating uh, the workload for their uh, for their employees or their staff members? Is it because they don't know how long things take to be done or they just don't care and just dump the work as it comes on the staff without really mitigating the impact this has on their time? Well, have you ever uh, planned a project for yourself and found out that it took more time? Always. <laughs> right. So I think we, we are all uh, susceptible to such mistakes that, uh, you know, it's a general tendency that we underestimate the time and effort uh, required to, uh, to get something done. So that's part of the answer. I don't think managers are malevolent, you know, I think... Uh, you you do these mistakes uh, for your own projects independently, and 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 they do these mistakes for themselves and their employees. Uh, so there's a way to um, cope for that. You know, I work with this Accenture, but when you do planning, you can you can add uh, contingency. You can add like some, you know twenty percent, thirty percent, you name it. But you can. Uh, you know that you regularly underestimate the workload. So once you know it, you can plan for that. Uh, but another part of the answer is in some cultures, it's there's a um, there the, people value being heroic. So um, you're a hero if you said you're going to deliver that to the client in 30 days while you full know you know, it should take 50 days. But because you're so good and you're a hero and your team is the best, then you're going to plan for 30 days. And that's another thing. That's knowingly trying to be a uh, 
you know, an extraordinary person. And sometimes, yes, managers and, and upper management, they will uh, take this stance and then everybody suffers in the, in the team. Mm, absolutely. Wow, fantastic insight there. Re- really, really appreciated it. And maybe moving on a little bit, um, we also advocate for work-life balance policies at the workplace, and we tend to focus on the benefits and the business case. Uh, But as we just discussed before, it's not everybody benefits from these policies. So my question would be, uh, are there bad policies or policies that haven't been well-constructed, or they're only unfavorable conditions? for these kind of policies to take effect? I think it's it's not that there are bad policies, um, you know, unless they're obviously unfair. Uh, but I think the, the, the issue is that there is not enough of the good policies. Um, so let me focus now on, on, on what I believe employers should get busy uh, to, to implement what I term the good policies. Um, first, um, programs to evaluate and redesign work processes and workloads. Uh, as follows from what I've, I've said before, uh, this should be the core of any work life, health, well-being, resilience, sustainability program, you name it. So again, work redesign workloads should be the core. I'd like to share a saying from a, a pharmaceutical company where I did a lot of field work. Uh, they uh, they said, they explained to me, you know, employees are like fish in a pond. You can enroll the fish in a stress management training, in a time management training, but if you put them back in a toxic pond, they'll still burn out. So what they did is they had team resilience workshops where they brought teams together and the teams identified where the stress and the hurdles came from, and they worked together to find solutions. And they wrote down, you know, the ideas and the actions, and they had follow-ups on what they had decided to change with dates and people responsible for each action. So in my view, the policies, they need to be bolder. They need to address how we can reinvent work and the distribution and the scheduling of tasks and responsibilities. Um, another example, because so far we've been discussing, you know, white-collar work, knowledge workers, but there's a fascinating research on blue-collar and low-income workers. Um, so the research of Susan Lambert, um, she showed that for low-income workers, the main hurdle uh, is large variations in their schedules and unpredictability. These people get called, you know, short notice, last minute, can you come in? And they don't have care arranged. uh, So it it completely messes up their lives. Um, So she worked with employers uh, so that the computer-based schedules were changed to account for the fact that these workers have a life and they have other commitments and so that both the business and the workers can actually benefit from a little more stability and predictability in schedules. So it it doesn't have to be, you know, huge, um, uh, huge programs, but it has to be uh, 
paying attention to workloads and how you schedule people and how teams can come up collectively uh, with, uh, with solutions. And then the other set of policies that I wish we'd see more uh, pertain to supporting managers as they implement work-family policies. Um, it, it's not enough to just issue policies and let managers struggle with them because managers are already overworked and their knowledge of the policies is quite poor unless they invest time and effort to understand them. But, you know, how many managers are going to spend a day studying the policies and the processes and the grievance processes and all of that? So it's not even enough to train managers. Um, what they need usually is support in the moment in which they are dealing with an employee's request. So it can be a work-life champion in the HR department. It can be a help desk that they can call or email with specific questions. For instance, uh, this employee has requested uh, telework. Do they actually have a right to do that? What are my responsibilities? What should I do? Uh, how many days do you think is reasonable? Is it two? Is it three? Is it the whole week? Um, oh, and that employee, they just mentioned job shares. Uh, I've never heard of that. What's that? Uh, <laughs> can it work out? Can you help me? Um, then, uh, well, if they telework, how should I appraise their performance? Because I no longer see them. So that's a challenge. So, you know, managers need help. And if they have someone who can, you know, walk them through what they should do so that uh, people's careers are not hurt, uh, that is really going to help. Absolutely. I mean, again, really excellent points here. And, um, and I think it's a little bit of taking a step back to be able to take two steps forward um, and not dump some of these kind of prefabricated policies on top, as you say, on these toxic or dysfunctional workplaces um, where there's no trust, where people have no autonomy, where it's, it's a lot of control uh, and overwork, but to really shape it together and take a step back and say, okay, what actually has to get done here and how, how do we do it? Um, moving on, it's it's a little bit linked to this, but but slightly different question because uh, I, I flashed on one of your sentences in one of your papers, which confirmed a little bit my suspicion that you know when we advocate for more work-life balance policies, we we formulate the business case, but the impact always seems to be of we will have less absenteeism or less burnout or Le uh, less turnover, less mental health issues. But it's very difficult to pin down the positive aspects of what is it that we're actually going to have more of or are we going to have more happy people, more healthy people. But it's very difficult to quantify and also feels very soft and kind of mushy uh, when speaking to senior leaders. So do you also see this, that um, it's easier to talk about the impact of the lack of work-life balance than the, the impact of the having the work-life balance and what kind of evidence or methods are there that we can maybe move forward on this aspect right i i find it a bit sad i agree with you but i find it a bit sad that you know uh, some workplaces are 
they need to be convinced that they are hurting <laughs> work-life balance uh, as opposed to, you know, uh, workplaces, in my view, are part of societies and they should be from the start <laughs> striving to uh, actually, uh, you know, uh, not only not hurt, but also do some good. <laughs> uh, but, but I agree with you. Uh, so how do we, uh, how do we um, make the business case? What I have seen that is the most convincing, in my view, is intervention uh, research. Um, in particular, the work of uh, Leslie Hammer and Ellen Kosek. Uh, they have gone to workplaces to measure a range of uh, work climate and health factors, uh, including, you know, drawing employees' blood to measure their stress levels and everything like that. So they measure everything before they do anything in a workplace. Then they train the managers on how to be family supportive. Uh, so they train each manager and it can be simple things such as, you know, asking a, an employee in the morning. So how are you? But like really asking, not just the how are you? Fine. Let's let's move to business, but really asking. And, uh, and making sure that if something is, is really uh, not going well in the person's life that day, that they can feel safe telling you. So they train the manager on how to be family supportive. And then they measure uh, all the same factors after the intervention. And they do that with control groups in which the managers don't get trained. And they have they have, you know, huge results. So you see what happens with the control groups. You see the improvements in the groups where the managers did get train, um, training. And um, on their websites, they have resources such as videos, videos where they explain what they did and, and how a manager can develop these family supportive supervisory behaviors. So again, it's not huge uh, new um fad policies it's it's in the details always uh, paying attention to the workloads paying attention to scheduling paying attention to everyday interactions between managers and employees but this does get huge results thank you for that and and uh, so what what do you think are then these key ingredients uh, that are necessary for employees to actually benefit from work-life balance policies. I mean, we have touched upon, you mentioned a couple of them of, you know, reducing the workload of creating this trusting environment where employers actually or line managers actually care. Uh, is there anything else that, that comes to mind? Yes. Um, I've mentioned work-life balance is a systemic issue so that Employees will benefit more from the policies when there is gender equality in families, and that means men embracing care, uh, because when this happens, both men and women will be able to use work-life policies without being penalized for it. So you mentioned our, our paper in the Academy of Management Review with uh, Sarah Bourdeau and, and Nathalie Ulfor. And in that paper, we explain when and why users of work families may get penalized so basically, when employees use policies that signal that they have commitments outside of work, for instance, they take a leave, they work part time, they request flexible work hours, uh, managers may interpret that use 
as a signal of lesser work devotion, lesser work commitment. And that's where their career suffers, um, especially if they are women, parents, uh, and if their manager has very high work expectations. So to benefit from work-life policies and benefiting means you can use them and you don't get hammered for it. Uh, employees need a culture that values life outside of work. So, so what's a culture that values life outside of work? Well, it shows in several ways. Um, public provisions. You know, I, I do a lot of cross-national research. Public provisions, they uh, provide a floor of rights for employees. Uh, I mean, uh, legal regulations for uh, parental leaves, maternity, paternity leaves, the right to request flexible hours as they have in the UK and in Australia when you care for children or elders. So a few years back, I wrote a piece where I pleaded for people in North America to consider not just the business case, but also what I termed the citizen case argument. Uh, provide citizens with basic rights. And there are a number of European uh, countries that do that. And that fosters a healthier work-life uh, interface. So that's one way in which, you know, we can boost um, the valuation of life outside of work in a culture. And the other way is, is cultural, precisely. It's a society that questions the work devotion schema. And, and here I'm building on the on the work of uh, uh, sociologists Mary Blaloy, John Williams, Jennifer Bordel. In the U.S., uh, the work devotion schema, the belief that it's duty to work hard all the time, uh, it stems from the Protestant Puritan heritage. In other countries, it has other religious roots. Uh, the results are that people feel little sense of entitlement for support. That, that's the work of Susan Lewis in, in the UK. They don't feel that they can expect support for work life as they juggle their different uh, commitments. So you were asking, you know, what do employees need? Well, they need public provisions. They need us to question the work devotion schema. Fantastic, absolutely. I could speak to you uh, for hours and hours and listen to you Ariane, but uh, time always flies, uh, unfortunately, way too quickly on the podcast. Now, before we come to uh, the last question, may I ask you to tell listeners uh, where they can find out more about your work, where they could perhaps get in touch? Of course. Um, so uh, my publications are available on ResearchGate. Uh, I also have a website uh, where I post my preprints because sometimes I cannot post every article on ResearchGate. And uh, my Twitter is at uh, Ariane Ollier. So feel free to uh, follow. I always post uh, new publications and uh, press articles. Thank you so much. Um, and now coming to the last question, which is always the same here on the Work Life Hub podcast. If I could ask you to give only one advice, one piece of advice to a senior manager based on what we discussed here and based on your knowledge and, and insight, what would be the kind of first advice that comes to mind? That's a big question. Uh, <laughs> I'd say um, please forget everything you know about 
human resources management. And, you know, the funny thing is I teach human resources, but I'll tell my students, you are not managing human resources. You are managing people. And these people, they have lives. So senior managers, please, <laughs> men and women come to work in the morning with emotions. They leave in the evening with things they need to do for their loved ones or themselves. They have, yes, they have career dreams, but they also have other dreams. And respecting these dreams is the decent, humane thing to do. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Ariane. I really thoroughly enjoyed uh, our conversation and I really appreciate the insight that you shared with, with listeners. Uh, and I just want to wish you really the best of success for your future research and, and your future work. Well, thank you so much, so much. And everyone have a healthy uh, work-life balance henceforth.